Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to the Center for Baptist Renewal podcast. My name is Winston Hotman. I'm one of the board of directors here, and I am joined by my favorite evangelical celebrity, Brandon Smith. Uh, He's also here on the board of directors. Uh, For those of you who don't know, the Center for Baptist Renewal is a group of Orthodox evangelical Baptists committed to retrieving the great tradition for contemporary Baptist faith and practice. I want to remind you, if you enjoy what you hear uh, today, to uh, subscribe, uh, hit the like button, and also share with your friends. Uh, So today we're talking about uh, a couple of early Christian figures. This is part of our Spiritual Classics Reading Challenge, which we are doing this year. You can find more information about that on our website. But today we're covering several uh, works from the early church period. Uh, The first one is The Life of Antony, written by St. Athanasius. And then we're also covering The Life of Moses, written by Gregory of Nyssa, as well as The Life of St. Macrina, also by Gregory of Nyssa. So, uh, Brandon, um, we're kind of coming out strong. We're we're covering asceticism. We're going to be talking about allegorical reading of scripture, uh, you know, something which typically warms the hearts of uh, contemporary evangelicals. And so um, I I guess a good place to start is just with a uh, general introduction. Um, I think we start with the life of Anthony, but if you want to give us kind of a brief bio or any other introductory comments that you want to make. Yeah, I think uh, before we get to the books, too, by the way, I have my uh, my four Cappadocians mug here uh, for those on YouTube. Very you can nice. see that. And there she is, the great Macarena the Younger. Um, Love it. Yeah, one thing that we that uh, is good to know about these books as you're reading them is that they are biographies, but they're not merely biographies. Um, what all three of these, uh, what, well, two of these authors are doing in these three works is using um, virtuous people as an allegory or as an example for how the Christian life should be uh, as an example of virtue. Uh, there's also like with Athanasius and Antony, if we want to just kind of start there, um, Antony is this well-known uh, hermit uh, monk who lives sort of outside of the city. Um, you know, there's, there's these sort of quotes about, you know, um, Antony was so well-respected and people went to him for wisdom that the desert became a city because there were all these people out there always trying to see him. And um, he's well-known at that time. Uh, Partially, I think he's already well-known. Athanasius, I think, raises his level of celebrity, if you will, in the sense that Athanasius begins using Antony as a way to talk about what the Christian life should look like. Um, so, so Athanasius always has this underlying asceticism, this idea that we should uh, forego sort of fleshly pleasures or earthly pleasures. Uh, and he's like, you know, Antony, the, the king of all people, uh, doing that, right? He's a monk. He's a hermit. He lives outside of the city. And so there's always this, it seems to me, there's always this sort of pull with Athanasius of, I don't know, I'm, I'm psychoanalyzing a little bit, but like in another life, he would have liked to have been a monk. You know, he sort of really respects, yeah. he really respects the work uh, that's going on there uh, with, with Antony and others. And so as he's writing Life of Antony, he, he's really using Antony as an example to say, here is what a Christian should look like. One who denies earthly passions and possessions, um, one who memorizes scripture. Um, he definitely is going to use him as a sort of way to say the Arians are these sort of uh, pagans who, uh, you know, Arians quote, you know, he, he kind of lumps a lot of people together uh, in that, in that term, but he kind of uses it to say these Arians are sort of pagans. They care about fleshly desires. It's not just a hermeneutical issue for them. It's a moral issue. It's a virtue issue. Um, and then kind of uses Antony as the example for how to live. Um, most people think he probably wrote this while uh, Athanasius wrote this while he was in exile. Uh, so he may have been a little even extra, punchy as he was writing some of these things. 
um, as or one perhaps perhaps even living with uh, some of the monks yes. that had formed the community around uh, Anthony. So. Yeah, yeah, and so he's got all this kind of in his mind. You know, he's got he's got his enemies. He's got Anthony. He's got the you know sort of uh, people that are around him, and then sort of trying to write about uh, what is a Christian supposed to be. So I do wonder. I mean, I, he doesn't say this explicitly, but I think a lot about how when he's in exile, I wonder if there's a sense in which he obviously wants to get back to Alexandria. There's also a sense in which he kind of lives the ascetic life a little bit when he's in exile. And it, it does stuff to him. It changes him, you know, I yeah. think in really obvious and meaning way, meaningful ways. I mean, and I'll stop here after this, but even on the incarnation, I think David Brackey and others have made a really good contribution there to say that on the incarnation is ultimately about how God has become man or how the word has become man. Mm. But even underneath that is this idea that Christ is the sort of perfect ascetic, right? Like he is the one who has uh, given his whole life to God, body and soul, one who has modeled for us this virtue, you know? So he sees somebody like Antony as somebody who's closer to Christ than anybody could be because of all this yeah. sort of self-sacrifice and stuff. So anyway, um, yeah, you, you know more than I do about this generally in terms of um, what monks are and all these different communities and stuff. So that might be helpful too, just to talk through a bigger picture of what's going on at the time. Yeah, and, and I think what you've said so far is a great segue into that because uh, like you mentioned, uh, th these figures are, are types, they're exemplars for Christians. Um, and, and oftentimes I think we have, we kind of stumble when we look at the decisions that they made, the kind of lifestyle that they lived, the kind of you know, literal applications of scripture, you know, going out into the actual desert and things like that. Um, and, but, but, you know, it's helpful to step back and to consider, you know, the sources of inspiration for these kinds of movements. So, so you mentioned uh, Antony um, is, you know, kind of in the self-imposed exile and Athanasius probably looks to him, you know, as with a sense of affiliation in his own experience. But then you step back and you think about, the theme or the motif of exile in scripture that's so mm -hmm. fundamental to the understanding of, of uh, the early Christian movement, you know, uh, Christ himself as the one who comes and participates in the exile, who's crucified outside of the camp. There's so many images we could draw and we could talk about first Peter and the way in which it uh, draws on the imagery of, of exile to describe the relationship of early Christians in the world around them, the experience of early Christians in the world and, um, you know, other other early Christian works that that, uh, you know, flesh this out. I, I think of the epistle to Diognetus. You know, the early church saw themselves as living in ex exile, living in a world that was is not as it ought to be. And the, and the beauty of that, of course, is that they in, in the wilderness, in that exile experience is where they find God, mm -hmm. uh, where they meet Christ. Um, and, you know, they could look back on very concrete examples. And this is, I think, one of the sources of inspiration or, or, or um, one of the origins streams that leads into early Christian asceticism. You look back on uh, Moses, right, who who has his own exile experience out in the wilderness where he meets God in the burning bush. You look at the prophets. You look at John the Baptist, the, the, you know, the prophet par excellence. You look at Christ's own temptation in the wilderness, it's all over the place, like this pattern of, of men um, and women being led out into these desolate places. And there, like you said, life springs forth. Um, and so uh, it's, it's helpful to remember, uh, you know, that there's some 
there's a lot of misconceptions about what they're doing, but it's helpful to think about some of those biblical inspirations. There are also other inspirations as well. There's examples of asceticism, obviously, in uh, Greco-Roman culture. Mm-hmm. Um, another helpful thing that I think is uh, good to remember is the social context uh, in, in which fourth century asceticism explodes. You, you have asceticism, various forms of asceticism uh really almost like the earliest since the earliest days of the church uh you get monasticism before saint anthony uh even in the work itself you know it references references some people that are already living lives like this but uh monasticism explodes in the in the fourth century um and 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 i think it's worth mentioning too you know it takes different shapes the kind of the classic distinction is you have hermetic uh monasticism, which is, you know, a, a hermit lifestyle, one lived in isolation. And then you have cenobitic monasticism, which is small communities of mm-hmm. monks living together. So those are those two forms. But um, uh, all of both of these strands of this movement are taking place in a context where Christianity is moving from this um, ostracized or persecuted uh, movement to becoming, you know, much more favored in the imperial court. Mm-hmm. And as that happens, um, Christianity becomes, in, in the words of one of my favorite professors, it begins to become fat and sassy. Uh, <laughs> it begins to lose its its um, moral edge, its, 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 its fidelity. And, uh, you know, as, as time goes by, it becomes socially advantageous to become a Christian. So Mm -hmm. you begin to have a lot of what we would call today nominalism in the Christian movement. Um, uh, Attempts to to broker power and and compromises for the sake of power and things like that. So it's helpful to remember that these guys are reacting uh, to some some really uh, dangerous movements within the church, Some, Mm -hmm. some, some examples of compromise. And they're wanting to return back to that ideal of moral purity uh, and moral rigor that characterized the the martyrs. You know, the mm-hmm. the the, the, the mod- those are the the models for them were were the martyrs who who gave up all for the sake of Christ. So you know, we can quibble about you know particular facets of what they chose to do um, and things like that, but it's important to I think see that they have they have some solid sources of inspiration in the scriptures. They're reacting to these social uh, movements and realities that are still just as true for the church today as for us. And so, um, and so looking to these figures as these, you know, these exilic martyrs, I think we, there's a lot for us to learn, a lot for us yeah. to be challenged by, despite the fact that we don't necessarily want to adopt every, every single thing that they chose to do. So. Yeah, it's a, it's a good, it's a really good point to bring up the sort of move from the biblical passages and the sort of ideas there to martyrdom. I mean, like, so, you know, you read Dagnetus or you read like Ignatius where I'm doing a patristic exegesis seminar right now here at, um, at Cedarville. And we were reading Ignatius where he basically says, um, you know, don't come and rescue me. I know that you think it would be nice for you to come rescue me, but I don't want you to, I want to be uh, martyred for Christ. I want to be sort of, um, and the students were just like, this guy just seems like he just wants to die. Like it's, it, it was so strange to them. And they were like, yeah. doesn't he have like a church to go back to? Like, isn't he just like uh, abandoning his responsibility, you know? And no, I mean, they're, they're living in a world in which like they expect to be martyred for their faith, many of them. 
Um, yeah. Especially, especially um, you know, as you get up in the centuries there and you have the great persecution and other things that happen, they're expecting these type of things to happen. Uh, and then, like you said, the, the Constantine becomes emperor um, and consolidates the kingdom in 324. And, you know, essentially you don't have a Christian empire per se until later, but you certainly have at least Christians have a lot of social power and a lot of freedom to practice. And yeah. um, so how does a Christian in a world in which they have the freedom to practice and even have some political power, how do they live like a martyr? Right. And that's sort of what asceticism does. It says, okay, well, we're not actually being martyred anymore, but there is a sense in which the self-sacrifice is what the Christian is called to do. So yeah, yeah, you think about being a Christian in America or in the West, where generally speaking, you have Christian freedom. I mean, there is a lot there to think like, okay, I have a wife and kids. I'm not going to go live a hermit life. You know, I'm not, that's not what uh, the Lord has called me to, but in yeah. what ways can asceticism and what ways can that sort of way of self-sacrifice and denial of um, fleshly pleasures like that is what the Bible tells us to be doing. This is what Paul says, yeah. regardless of context, right? So, yeah, and you know, uh, if, if you think about the role of the prophet in Scripture, uh, the, the prophet is always, in some sense, detached from the community, yeah. or from at least its its structures of power and and, and formal, you know, organization, uh, and and yet he's still also part of it. Um, I, I'm reading through Jeremiah in my own personal scripture. And, and you know, in Jeremiah, I believe it's chapter two or, or maybe chapter one. You know, God tells Jeremiah he's going to place Jeremiah as sort of a fortified city within Judah. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and basically, Jeremiah, you're going to be, you know, just run through the ringer by your, your fellow uh, 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 Jews, you know, your fellow uh, members of the tribes of Judah. Um, it, so he, he's in it. And yet he's also against it not, and not part of it. Um, and I think that that's, that's something, uh, that's something that's probably true, uh, in, in any prophetic role throughout church history. Um, that, uh, it, and this relates to what you were saying, you know, Athanasius looks to, uh, Antony as kind of this idealized Christian life. And yet he, he himself though, doesn't, doesn't imitate it literally, uh, Anthony's life. He's going to yeah. continue his work as a bishop. He's going to continue his writing ministry and all of that. Um, and I think that what's going on then there's there's a lot that's been written about you know the relationship between the bishops who came to represent the institutional power of the church and then the holy man who yeah. uh, was endowed with the authority because of his you know piety and charisma, um, and, and and the relationship of those two. And but I think that what's what's going on is the church always needs the prophet the church mm -hmm. always needs one who is sort of standing askance of the the institutional form of the movement and and saying this isn't right um the danger there of course is that this can lead to kind of a complete detachment from the church and, a, and a, obviously certain self-righteousness mm -hmm. and that's probably one of the most common mischaracterizations of the monks not that self-righteousness didn't exist but that at the part of what they were doing was this idea that they were better than everyone else and they didn't want anybody else's else to pollute them. And they were going out here to abstain. Well, that, that's blatantly not the case. As, as you can hear from the testimony of St. Anthony and many others, they, they felt 
that they were probably the worst of all and had to take mm -hmm. special precautions, you know, to, to live a life of, of faithfulness. Yeah. But but there's also this prophetic role that they have in, in calling the church away from its um, uh, complicitness with the world and, and, and its, its uh, moral compromise, its doctrinal compromise uh, and things like that. And so it's helpful to think of it in that role as well, that even though it might not take the same form, we, we do still have the Antonies among us, the prophets among us. We need them who are constantly calling the church back. And, and, and it's oftentimes the case that they they lead a pretty hard life. They don't they don't they don't get invited to maybe to the big conferences and things like that. Um, but uh, but they have an important role to play uh, for us. So. Yeah, even even the way that he describes Antony, you know, uh, never washing himself and only only having bread and salt and water, you know, and uh, all these kind of things. I mean, it's not you know he's, he's uh, rumored to have lived up in a tree because he was trying to get away from people. You know, I mean, there's all these kind of things that are, yeah, yeah. that are going on there. Well, it's a yeah, it's not a a cush life off somewhere. It's the yeah. exact opposite. Um, so yeah, that is funny. You mentioned that. Um, it, it, I think the the most humorous element of the story is An Anthony can't get away. Yeah. from the church he can't right. get away from people and he, he keeps going out further and further into the desert they keep following him saying yeah. tell us stuff we want to hear from you people are debating um, him. All kinds and, of and, and yeah. sort of there towards the end you know he, he as, as as it progresses he kind of acquiesced and and becomes a, a, an influential formative part of the church and then obviously through the writings of saint athanasius becomes influential well beyond his own time so well i was thinking it was funny when i was prepping for this i was like i wonder if anthony would be mad at us for talking about him right now like wasn't that the whole yeah wasn't that the whole <laughs> idea you know so uh all right well you want to talk about uh talk about uh, life of moses by gregory we're already looks like we're already like 15 minutes in so yeah so so this is interesting this so we're taking a a, a shift here the obviously the life of anthony is a work about a historical figure from the church period uh, with the life of Moses, uh, it's it's similar in many ways, but it's it has to do with a biblical figure. Um, and of course, so maybe it's worth mentioning a little bit about uh, Gregor Nyssa at this point. Uh, I, I just realized we didn't quite get into a timeline of St. Anthony, <laughs> yeah. um, but readers can reference the introduction to the work that we we link to in our blog post. Um, but uh, a little bit about Gregory of Nyssa. So, so Gregory of Nyssa comes from this uh, fourth century uh, family of, of, of Christian fame, right? So um, his uh, grandmother is Macrina uh, the Elder, who um, is, uh, along with her husband, uh, suffered during the persecution and during the Diocletian period um, in the early fourth century. Uh, her husband uh, is martyred. Um, she, uh, uh, after moving to Cappadocia, uh, is is okay. Um, she becomes a student of Gregory the Wonderworker, who was a student of Origen, uh, which is going to be formative for the theology of, of Basil, um, Gregory's brother, and, and Gregory. Um, so Gregory has has this, you know, renowned, has these renowned grandparents. His own parents are also very well known, very well known for their piety and faithfulness as Christians. Uh, they have several children. We're not sure exactly how many they have, but but uh, three of them, uh, four actually, but, but especially three of them become famous. Uh, Basil uh, the Great, Basil 
of Caesarea, one of the uh, Cappadocian fathers, of course, becomes a uh, important writer and thinker in the church and a statesman, politician, a church leader, just one of those guys that has it all together. It, it seems every everything he touches seems just a natural born leader is, is a great way of saying it. Uh, so his brother is Basil. Gregory's a little bit different. He's a much more quiet and meek person. Um, but he also uh, ends up having a very influential role uh, in the church of the time, eventually is appointed Bishop of Nyssa um, and uh, is actually present at the Council of Constantinople in 381, uh, where he presides over the funeral of Miletius, if I remember correctly. Um, but uh, he, he, he's also going to have a huge influence through his writings uh, and the development of Eastern spirituality, and then also uh, uh, Trinitarian orthodoxy. Uh, his The other famed member of their family is his sister, uh, Macrina. And uh, the reason she's well known is not because she pursued it uh, or, or sought it, but because of the work that uh, we're discussing in a little bit, the life of St. Macrina. Um, so anyway, turning to, to the life of Moses, uh, basically what he's going to do is... Um, Read the life of Moses. Um, he, he's going to give you something of what we might call a literal overview in the first half of the book. And then in the second half of the book, he's going to reread it, uh, looking at the spiritual sense of it and seeing in the life of Moses a, a prefiguring or an allegory of the Christian ascent uh, through virtue to union with God and knowledge of God, which is the the end goal of all humanity. Um, so that's kind of basically what it's about. If you want to perhaps jump in and, and and kind of help us to begin, especially thinking through that relationship of of, of virtue um, and and perfection. Yeah, I mean, it is fair to say um, it's fair to say that that Gregory is ascetic as as well in his own way. Uh, certainly, Macrina is. Um, you know, there's kind of the stories about her being engaged to somebody and then just realizing that she kind of, you know, it's kind of Christ is already my husband type idea, which is very common among uh, ascetic women. Um, and so you, you, you kind of had that sort of idea going on there. Gregory seems to be living that type of life, maybe similar to Athanasius in that sense of a public ministry, but with a sort of ascetic underpinning to his life. Yeah. Um, and so when he writes the life of Moses, yeah, he's trying to show, um, so maybe we could say this underneath all of Gregory's theology, you know, you, you have this, this rich doctrine of God, you have these other things. Um, he's got a whole sort of um, thing about, for lack of a better word, we'll say a thing about this, uh, where he talks about sort of um, how we have fallen from sin through Adam and Eve um, and how we sort of have this, um, our, our will is fallen, our desires are fallen, but God has given us this freedom to sort of chase after perfection, as you will, maybe not sinlessness per se, but a type of perfection in the sense of having a, a higher level of virtue, um, an ascent of your soul towards something higher, uh, where you are able to move from sort of, you know, being led by your belly, as it were, to being very much sort of against your appetites or against your passions, you know, working against them to, to live a godly life. And so for Mo with Moses and Macarena, in some sense, he's got two different examples of somebody who does this. Um, and so, yeah, he gives us, you know, very literal reading of Moses' life, you're just kind of like, yeah, we get it. You know, like this is Moses' story. Like we've, we've read, yeah. we've read the books, you know, we get it. Um, and then all of a sudden uh, he turns 
And he says, uh, I love it. I think there's no need to prolong our discourse anymore by presenting the reader the whole life of Moses. I'm like, I'm pretty sure you already did that, actually. Um, <laughs> he says, but he's ultimately an example of virtue and true wisdom, yeah. right? And so he says that there is a, a level of humility and weakness that you have to have to want to pursue the type of life that Moses gives. And so this is an allegory uh, in the sense that Moses's life is like an allegory for the Christian life. But it's not, uh, you know, sort of detached from the life of Moses himself. It's not sort of like, well, Moses wasn't a real person. Uh, who really cares who Moses was or what he did? What you really need to do is see three principles for life. Um, yep. It's not that sort of principalized idea. It is that God has always worked through his people to become virtuous, uh, to restore his people from this fallenness that they have in Adam and Eve. Uh, to this level of virtue and knowledge of God that ultimately leads to union with God. And so Moses is just one example of that. I mean, he he does this in his other writings with Abraham and David and Joseph and all kinds of other characters. Um, he's always saying that ultimately when you're reading scripture, you're not just reading about a guy who lived a long time ago who loved God. You're reading about one who God worked through as an example of virtue because you know, it's kind of that idea that all these church fathers do, which is if you just read the life of Moses as a history lesson, you're basically yeah. just reading it the way the, the, the Jewish people did. Um, yeah. If you don't see Christ in there, then you're ultimately not reading Moses's life as a Christian. And so yeah. what does that look like? Well, primarily it looks like Christ is the ultimate human, the, the perfect image made flesh. And so all the ones who come before him are examples of virtue so that you can point toward Christ so that you can become like him in, in eternal union with him. Yeah. And I think one of the things you mentioned is so important to get, which is uh, the spiritual reading is is not uh, dismissing or diminishing the historical reading of, of the text. Um, I think a lot of people assume that a re an allegorical reading, a spiritual reading uh, somehow is a slippery slope to liberalism because it denies the literal or the historical or doesn't care about those elements and, and the constraints that they place on our interpretation. Um, but, you know, a lot of that is uh, projecting kind of contemporary uh, forms of, of non-literal readings onto the past. Universally, uh, just about, I won't, maybe perhaps universally is too strong of a word, but but throughout the writings of the church fathers, you find this this um, this strong emphasis on a spiritual reading that nevertheless assumes the historicity and the importance of the historicity of the text. For the the fathers, um, the reason why these historical realities to, of which the scriptures speak are are also can be interpreted spiritually is because not just scripture, not just li the literature of the Bible, but all of history is a is is figural in nature. Mm -hmm. All of history is kind of stamped with this pattern um, that 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 leads us and points us to the person of Christ. Um, I, me and a, an associate pastor at our church right now are preaching through the Book of Jonah, and it's so evident, even just from a naturalistic reading of that text, that that Jonah is a figure of Israel. He's he's retracing Israel's descent into exile, their death and resurrection and restoration back to the presence of God in the promised land. You can look at all of the other the patriarchal figures of Scripture already. This is this is being 
done in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Uh, Moses and Joseph, their their journeys all prefigure in some way Israel's journey. Um, and we look at that, we read that, and it's not like we would assume, oh, well, the writer of this particular scriptural book is denying the historicity of this story because of the way that he's telling it. No, they, they see all of this uh, as pointing to sort of a basic pattern that is uh, recapitulated throughout the scriptures. And then, of course, taken up in the life of Christ and, and fulfilled in its, in, in, in its perfect uh, form, in its perfect way. And so when uh, Gregory of Nyssa uh, reads the life of Moses in this way, and once again, we can quibble about particular aspects of what he says, particular interpretations, maybe the detail in which he's reading each of the elements of the story, but he's not fundamentally doing anything different than the scriptures are already doing themselves in the way that they, that they tell the historical record of what happened in the life of Israel leading up to Christ. So I think that's a very important uh, point to make is that uh, this in no way um, denies the historicity. The the church fathers have a very high view of providence Mm -hmm. uh, and and they see God meticulously pointing to Christ, even in uh, some of what we might see as insignificant details of Mm -hmm. particular stories. So, yeah, and that's the that's the thing that, you know, if, if Gregory spends, I mean, maybe at the end of the day, like three quarters of this really just talking about all the stuff Moses did that seems inconse- inconsequential. He doesn't want to say it's only inconsequential, right? And so I think yeah. I think you bringing that up is really important. And the idea that um, scripture is not merely this uh, this thing over here that you read and you go to but that scripture is the hermeneutical key for all of reality. Absolutely. So part of why, yeah, part of, and you said this uh, really well, you know, part of this idea that Moses is an example of virtuous life and what we should be looking for is because scripture is interpreting real life for us. So when you read scripture, you're not just looking back and going, oh, Moses was awesome. That was a really cool story about how he led the Israelites out of Egypt, but rather that look at what God did in the life of Moses. And that's the type of life that you should be, pursuing. That's the type of submission to God that you should have. Uh, Because for Gregory, I mean, this is super core to everything he does. The Christian life is a life of progress. It's always a life of progress. And so it's always an ascent. And so what Moses is doing is going from the guy who murdered uh, a fellow or an Egyptian uh, to the guy who's up on the mountain delivering the law to the people. It's a literal yeah. ascent from the lows of murdering somebody up to the yeah. mountain of God, right? <laughs> and so um, for Gregory, it's just not weird to to even, it's not weird to think that that's the point of the story, you know? Yeah. Um, so a- again, whether you want to quibble with that being the main part of the story or whatever, I don't even think Gregory is saying that the only reason why you read Moses is so you can have um, an example for how to live. Yeah, I don't even think he's thinking in a hierarchical sense. He's like, Moses was a real person that God worked through and he led the Israelites out of the wilderness and Christ is a type of Moses and you and I should live like that. And yeah. he just, I mean, he's not bifurcating all the, you know, he's make, yeah. not making these dichotomies and bifurcations. He just says, this is what scripture is calling us to do. And if you're a Christian reading scripture and you don't see uh, moral virtue and you don't ultimately see Christ as the sort of telos of that, then you're just not reading scripture right. Yeah. And so. you know, I think one of the benefits of seeing Moses and, and other figures as, as prefiguring our life in Christ 
is that it avoids the kind of uh, moralistic readings of yep. the Old Testament that, you know, I, I often grew up with and, and I'm sure many others have where, you know, you look at the life of Moses and, and if all it is, is is just a moral exemplar and it's certainly that. But if, if that's all it is, then, you know, you read the life of Moses, you're like, OK, don't do this, do this. Or you read yep. the life of Jonah, it's like, don't be like Jonah. Um, the whole point, the, the way in which those stories are, those histories are recorded is to make the point to the readers that you are Moses, you mm -hmm. are Jonah, you already are them. And so uh, God has given you this record as a way of understanding your life as it already is in Christ. Um, and, and, and that's very redemptive. And it's also it, it also has a way of shaping our imagination, our moral uh, imagination in ways that just a, you know, kind of detached moral example doesn't doesn't do for us. So, yeah. And at the very, very end, I mean, he has that that really beautiful way where he basically says, look, um, to have a perfect, quote unquote, perfect Christian life is to avoid um, a wicked life. Uh, avoid being a slave uh, to God merely because you fear punishment, but instead, uh, and also you don't do good just to get like some sort of reward or hope out of it. But he says, having the virtuous life is not like a contractual agreement of blessing and curse, but it's actually friendship with God, right? He says that yeah. falling from, from God's friendship is the most dreadful thing that we should ever want to have. Uh, and so he says, well, then what should you do? You should be climbing the mount, right? You should be going toward God, climbing toward God. The worst thing that can happen to you is that you can fall away from friendship with God. Uh, and when you yeah. view it that way, what you realize is, is he's saying what every good evangelical pastor says, that you should be more like Christ and you should uh, love God and serve him and worship him. And that's the point. And that's, that's what you should be doing. Yeah. Not just like you said, a list of do's and don'ts, but a, an actual way of transforming who you are and how you view the world. And the right. more that you do that, Gregory says, Origen says, I mean, all these guys say, the more that you do that, the, the closer to God that you are when you actually see that that's what scripture is trying to do. And so, yeah. and, and, and maybe we could even say another side point is that Paul uses the word allegoromena in Galatians. And most of these guys just say, uh, if Paul can do it, why can't I do it? And yeah. that, that makes you nervous, right? Or can make you nervous. But to them, it's the apostles have given us the pattern for reading scripture and for um, understanding who Christ is. So we should just do more of what the apostles were doing. And yeah. again, if you don't like that assumption, that's fine. But that's the assumption is that the apostles are teaching us how to read and live. And uh, so that's a default assumption. Do more of what Paul did. That's what they yeah. all, for yeah. better or worse, that's what they're all doing. So <laughs> that's right. That's right. Could be worse. You know, don't do what Paul right. did. I mean, that's not, you know, you could do that. <laughs> uh, is there anything else you want to mentioned from the life of Moses. I mean, obviously it's, it's important to acknowledge we're not actually walking through uh, these works in detail. That's not the point. I mean, we, we don't, we're not here to reduplicate, you know, the introductions that uh, yeah. those who are following the spiritual classics reading challenge can read for themselves, but hopefully providing some um, almost in a way, an apologetic for, for sympathetic readings, uh, yeah. I think is, is a lot of what we want to do. Um, we have our own disagreements with many of the things that we might find in here, but um, we really want to help people to get past this disposition of cynicism and, 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 and get certainly past the, the caricatures and the stereotypes uh, that yeah. we often project onto earlier periods of the church. So 
Um, so anything else though, from the life of Moses before we move on to the life of St. Macrina? I don't think so. Let's get, let's get to the, the star of the show. All right. So, younger. so if you can give us kind of a basic orientation or introduction to that. Yeah. Sorry. I was, I was sipping from my Macrina mug once again. I love this nice. thing. It's like, the, this is maybe the, the best, like $8 I ever spent in my life. Where did uh, you right find now. it? Uh, I'm drawing a blank. Thing? I was about to say, um, it's on redbubble.com where they make all these different things. And the guy's name is Chris something. And I'm drawing a blank, but you can find okay. it. He's got a very distinct style. All of his stuff looks like this. Yeah. I'm drawing a blank. I like it. Anyway, For those um, listening to the podcast, it's uh, unfortunately they can't see it, but no, I've got a t-shirt with origins face on it from the same, uh, same store. <laughs> so, um, nice. a different store for a different day, but, uh, yeah. So, so life of Macrina, I mean, we, so we've talked a little bit about how these are examples of virtuous lives, uh, that these guys are writing about. Um, some of that is contextual. They're, they're in the fourth century in which asceticism is growing. Uh, it's all right. I mean, it's, it's not that it's not in the church already, but it's growing in a particular way, as Winston so uh, pointed out so well earlier. Um, but for Gregory and Basil, there is this, um, this ridiculously high reverence for Macrina's life. Um, you know, not only do we have the life of Macrina, but we also have on the soul and resurrection uh, that, that Gregory writes as well. Um, which is, I think, very clearly modeled after Plato's uh, Phaedo, um, but doing it like in a, in, a, in a Christian way, basically. But essentially, what he what he does is he sort of recounts. Which is the, for those who don't know, it's the account of the death of Socrates. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, and so, right. And so, Macrina is sort of seen as this this teacher on her deathbed, uh, in the same way, um, teaching him about what it means to live a virtuous life and what it means to, to look for the resurrection and what the point of the soul is and what the soul should be doing. And ultimately, it's the same idea, this ascent uh, to God. And so Macrina ends up being their teacher, um, their model, their example um, for all of the conversations we have about um, uh, you know, gender and church leadership and all these kind of things. You know, one of the things I really appreciate about the Cappadocian brothers is uh, and particularly Gregory is the immense way the immense respect that they have for their older sister um, and the way that she lives and they don't use themselves as examples of how to live they use their older sister as an example yeah. of how to live and so when you're reading the story what you're reading is um, two things I think one you kind of two parallel tracks one is him honoring his sister and then obviously the sort of secondary or maybe primary whatever. Um, is that he's saying she is an example of what the Christian life should be. Um, so then there's a lot of stuff underneath there about, uh, and you could talk about this too, just about um, Greco-Roman values and sort of why they would be drawing on some of these uh, other some philosophical ideas like the death of Socrates um, that yeah. probably would help a little bit too. So, Yeah, you know, I think it's helpful to point out, uh, you know, by by philosophy, by by um, at, at this point in time, philosophy is not what we think of it as now, you know, the kind of academic discipline is distinct from, you know, theology, sociology, et cetera. Uh, it was uh, in the ancient world, a way of life, um, mm -hmm. a kind of a full bodied experience uh, that was more than just about um, the life of the intellect. Um, and it's helpful to think about that as, um, as like you said, uh, Gregor Nyssa is kind of putting forth Macrina as the um, kind of this exemplar of the well-lived life. Um, the uh, 
author of the introduction, Kevin Gorgon, in the edition that we recommended on our website, he, he points out that there's something of a fusion here of Socrates and then Thecla uh, mm-hmm. from the, the Acts of Paul and Thecla, the early Christian uh, apocryphal work. Thecla was in, in, this, in that story a uh, companion of Paul mm-hmm. um, and, and, and exercised a very important influential role alongside of him in, those, in, in, the, in that story. Um, and she becomes something of a figure of other uh, uh, female leaders uh, within the church. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it's helpful to think about that. And it's helpful to also think about then if that's the case, if it, if it involves this kind of a um, fusion of uh, this kind of Socratic ideal, this philosophical ideal drawn from Greco-Roman um, philosophy and culture, and, and but then also this this Christian element as well. How is it? How is it different? How is it the same? And uh, you know, there's probably a, there's a lot more that we could go into. We could talk about this in a lot more depth. But you know, one of the most important distinctions uh, between, say, the Phaedo and this work is the importance of the body. Mm-hmm. And the importance of the resurrection. So whereas in the Phaedo, it, it's it's very much about the soul um, to the neglect of the body, um, the, the hope that uh, Macrina embodies in the life that she she lives is one in which, yes, there is a, a denial of bodily pleasures. There is a there is an asceticism, a bringing of the body under discipline, but also this recognition that human beings are both body and soul. And, and, and apart from that, we're not whole. Um, both of those elements are, are, are as important. And by the way, it's, it's worth mentioning in this vein that this, this work, The Life of St. Macrina, was actually written probably to be read alongside uh, a treatise on the resurrection uh, in which Gregory you know, narrates the teachings of Macrina on, on that subject. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was very much at the heart of who she was, uh, her life, and certainly um, at the heart of what Gregory uh, uh, is trying to teach us based on her example. You know, other things that stand out as well is uh, kind of the, the female independence that you see in this work. The, the role and the authority, uh, the, the shaping influence that Macrina has in, mm-hmm. in the lives of her brothers, as well as in the community around her. Um, and, and, and this, of course, kind of brings up the topic of, you know, uh, how, how do you read um, the history in the, as, it, as it relates to gender relations in the past? And I think on the one hand, of course, uh, you, you don't want to uh, uh, paper over the kind of patriarchalism and sexism that exists at periods of time like this. So you, you'll even find elements, I think, in this work itself uh, when it when it begins to discuss, you know, what, what it sees as manifestations of effemineness and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you don't want to we don't ever want to dismiss that. But at the same time, part of that is also recognizing that because of of um the the ways in which gender relations have been conceived in the past, uh, the histories, the, the theology, they, they, they've all been written for the most part by men. Mm-hmm. And that can give us this sense that when you if that's all you if that's what you read, that that's all that was going on at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, fortunately, though, works like this, as well as other works, help us to kind of read between the lines and to see that actually 
in many circles of that time, women exercised a very important, influential role, leadership roles. They did things that we might not expect that they had done, Mm -hmm. or they played parts that we might not have expected them to have played, given the way uh, that uh, given the writings that have been passed down to us. So, you know, while not diminishing uh, the sexism that's there, I think it's also important to appreciate uh, examples of Macrina that, that give us evidence that women actually did, in many cases, have very influential, significant uh, leadership roles in the early church. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's one of the elements there. Um you know, Macrina in many ways uh, also stands as a challenge to um, uh, uh, Greco-Roman values in terms of her, her self-imposed poverty mm-hmm. and humility. Uh, this was a, a wealthy family. Um, uh, they, they, they were well-to-do. They had, had an estate. They had lands. Um, in fact, uh, as you read this story, you know, you find that examples of how it, it was often hard to manage all the all of the property that they own. Um, and and she she has a significant role in um, uh, she, she challenges many social norms in the way in which she embraces um, her poverty and humility. Um, there's a number of other things that we could talk about, but but I don't want to necessarily get bogged down into um uh, into all of those, but but I think in summary, what I would say is that um, she serves not only as a um, model Christian, but in doing so, she really does challenge many of the cultural norms and expectations about women at that time. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's um, that's really worth pointing out. I mean, you coming back to some of the stuff about her being either married or engaged and sort of choosing. This, yeah, that's another big one. Yeah, you know, choosing this chaste. Uh, life, you know, is is another thing that works far against Greco-Roman sort of virtues. Um, by the way, just uh, by way of recommendation to Lynn Kohick um, has written more than one book on this, particularly wrote a book, uh, Women in the World of the Earliest Christians. Yes. Um, it's very good, very helpful um, because it it is difficult to, it, 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 there's so many things that are difficult about reading works like this, right? So you read Antony and uh, you're like, am I supposed to go be a hermit? Like, is that what Christian, the Christian life is supposed to be? Uh, or you read the life of Moses and you think, okay, am I just supposed to principalize everything that I read now? Um, you know, am I really David and Goliath really is the challenges of my life? <laughs> you know? yeah. um, or uh, well, we won't get into that one today. Um, or even this idea of Mechrina, what, what do we do with the fact that there's this sense in which because of how we read gender and culture now, we read that back into the fourth century and assume certain things that are not true see some things that are real problems and at the same time be like, man, th- there's a, a high regard for Macrina and it's completely countercultural, like you're saying, for her to live this type of life. And you might even say, um, in some sense, at least countercultural for, for a bishop in the fourth century to be writing this type of hero work to a woman in the church. Yeah. Uh, now, I think generally in the church, women are held in much higher gar- regard than we assume that they were. But nonetheless, it is a, it is uh, in many ways an outlier. I mean, you mentioned Thecla uh, that comes before, and you know she that story is a beautiful story too of of you know um, her people trying uh, men trying to rape her and take advantage of her and her strength and her virtue and all these kind of things um, that are in some in some ways outliers um, yeah. in that time. And so it is important to remember these people are contextual. Uh, Anthony, uh, Anthony is writing, is living in a particular time. Ath- Athanasius is writing about him for a particular reason. 
Um, you've got all this Greco-Roman stuff going on where they deny the body or don't care about the body in certain ways, or you have Stoicism, which probably worships the body or idolizes the body in weird ways that are not quite Christian, but can like be worked into Christian, you know, like Tertullian's, like, you know, Greco-Romans, uh, philosophy is all the worst. And then he's kind of a Stoic, um, you know, there's this kind of idea where, uh, it's not, it just feels weird for us to read them. And I think I want to go back to that sort of now maybe overquoted thing that C.S. Lewis says in the, um, in the preface on the incarnation, where he says that one of the reasons why we read old books is to take us out of our own comfort zone, to read people who don't have the same presuppositions as us, and to see what can we learn from those who don't have the same blind spots that we do. And if you're reading these three works and your default position is that's really weird. uh, Yeah. That actually probably is partially what you should be getting out of it. But is it weird in a way that can shape you or is it weird in a way that you just ignore it? You know, I think, I think it can really shape us. And I think that's what they were trying to do when they wrote these 1600 years ago. Yeah. I think another way of putting it is another way of putting it is chronological snobbery is bad for the Baptist tradition. And, and that's really at the heart of so much of what we're about here at the center for Baptist renewal. Yeah. And, you know, with that being said, I, I I think this is probably a good place to stop. Mm -hmm. Um, Any, any final words before we go? No, I don't want. I don't want to get ranty. I think we almost got ranty. There. I don't want to get ranty. So, uh, but we, we recommend these works right. because they're they're beautiful works. They're important works, and yeah. we think they can serve the church well. So, great. Well, we hope that uh, you have enjoyed uh, hearing this episode of our podcast today. As a reminder, this is one of our uh, spiritual classics reading challenge podcast episodes. We'll have more to come in the future, both. Uh, podcast episodes, but also some blog posts to help orient you to uh, some of the readings. If you did enjoy what you hear, we encourage you to subscribe and to share with your friends. And as a final reminder, you can also find more about CBR and follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening.